this podcast covers serious crimes and subject matter that may be distressing to some audience members. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, and welcome to the first episode of True Crime on Our Minds podcast. I'm Dawn, and with me is my co-host and sister. Welcome, I'm Debbie. If you haven't already, go back and listen to our intro episode to learn why we decided to do this podcast and the types of true crime we'll be covering. So Debbie, are you ready to jump in and tell our listeners about the Lowcountry Rapist? Let's do this. Today's episode covers a crime that takes place in Charleston, South Carolina. Having lived in Charleston from the age of five until 24, I consider myself a Charlestonian. I still tell everyone I'm from Charleston, even though I haven't lived there for longer than I did at this point. And the same for you. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm totally a Phoenician now, but Charleston is still my home because it's where I grew up, went to school, and met and married my hubby Chris. If you paid attention in history class, you'll know Charleston for being where the first shots of the Civil War were fired. But before we get any further into the story, I want to start the episode with a segment called City Factor Crap. So Debbie, I'll give you a piece of information and you tell me if you think it is true or total BS, okay? Okay. So one of my favorite fictional TV shows is Criminal Minds. And so the fact or crap clue is actor Thomas Gibson, who played Aaron Hotchner on Criminal Minds, is from Charleston. I'd say that's a true fact. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. So I'm just going to read a little bit from Thomas Gibson's IMDb page. Thomas Gibson began his acting career at the age of 10 when he took part in children's theater. Gibson performed and studied with the Footlight Players at the Dock Street Theater and started his first play in 1973. Six years later, Gibson attended the College of Charleston and interned at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. He was soon encouraged to apply to the famous Juilliard School and ended up winning a scholarship to go there. He pursued his studies and graduated graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. That's really interesting. I really didn't know that about him. And then also on his IMD page, there were um, IMDB page, there were a couple of quotes. So here are some quotes about Charleston. There's nothing better for kids than a bucket and shovel at the beach. I grew up across the marsh from the Citadel. We love buying chicken necks at the Piggly Wiggly, tying them to a string on a stick and catching blue crabs. Charleston has something for everyone, rain or shine. Its architecture is unparalleled. Carriage rides are great for seeing the city and hearing the history behind certain houses in the area. So I thought that was a pretty interesting little tidbit there, and I have to agree. I feel the same way about Charleston. It's amazing how many people you find out are from somewhere that you are from or somewhere that you have lived. It makes you feel famous by association. Do you watch any like reality TV show? Yeah, not really, because I feel like they're really scripted and not really real reality TV. But, you know, Ray watches a, a lot of that. When we used to watch the real world in the in the 90s, I would always call it the unreal world. But there is one that I really like to watch. And it's not so much for the content as much as because it's about Charleston and it's called Southern Charm. And Chris used to make fun of me the first season that I watched it. But then he got into it. It's just such a train wreck looking at these people. And I'm thinking, gosh, anybody who's watching this thinks that's how people from Charleston are. But um, I really like it because you can see the scene 
greenery and the new restaurants and bars. And it's really kind of, Charleston has become a destination. Um, I, I know people used to go for the history uh, because of the Civil War, but now it's just really become more of a destination with the um, food scene there and a lot of the other stuff that, that, that they're really promoting about Charleston. The coolest thing I saw that I'd like to try is they have tree houses, you know, tree houses for grownups or all the thing. Asheville has them. They call it glamping. And um, but they have a set of tree houses that are very luxurious for tree houses that I'd really like to stay in. Well, that's funny that you mentioned that because that was a whole episode on Southern Charm. The girls went to these tree houses and it's just it's just a funny show. But anyway, Piggly Wiggly, I thought that that was funny in the quote. Uh, we don't have Piggly Wiggly out here, but when I w- lived in Charleston, my, my three places to shop were Piggly Wiggly, Bilo and Food Lion. And I don't even know if they still exist anymore. I don't know. We don't have uh, any of those grocery stores here. We did have a Piggly Wiggly, but it closed. And everyone used to laugh at that name. But actually, the first Piggly Wiggly was founded in Memphis by Clarence Saunders. And it was the first self-serve grocery store. Before then, you know, they would go and get the things off the shelf that you wanted. And in fact, at the mansion that Clarence Saunders was building before he went bankrupt, they actually have the original um, Piggly Wiggly grocery store in there. It's pretty interesting. So I thought that was really funny because uh, you know, I thought I'm further up north. Nobody would have heard of Piggly Wiggly, but here, this is where it all started. And they don't have Piggly Wiggly still there? We don't have Piggly Wiggly anymore. Nope. We are like a grocery store desert here. We have Kroger and then of course, you know, Walmart grocery. That's it. So enough of that. Let's uh, get on into the episode. Between 1990 and 1992, Charleston, South Carolina was terrorized by a serial rapist. Dubbed the Low Country Rapist, he would be suspected of 27 rapes, including that of a 13-year-old girl. The sexual assaults began the summer of 1990. However, the first article we found discussing the um, rapes was May of 1991, after a series of assaults were publicly acknowledged to possibly have been committed by the same perpetrator. I think the lack of information was in part because the police were being very tight-lipped about whether there was indeed a serial rapist on the loose. As we get further into the episode, you'll hear how investigators in numerous jurisdictions went back to look at other sexual assaults to see if they were related. So as we were reading through the research, a lot of the details concerning the rapes were out of order. And in some case, uh, some cases, the assaults were only briefly mentioned. We have done our best to try and piece all of this together in some form of chronological order. The first rape that was determined to fit the profile of the Lowcountry rapist occurred in March of 1990 at Hunter Ridge Apartments in North Charleston. Seven other sexual assaults that year would be connected, with the last occurring in October 17th. The rape stopped for five months, and it is speculated that it was either due to the publicity of the assaults, which we really couldn't find any newspaper reports of at the time, or that the perpetrator had left the area. The assaults picked back up in March of 1991 followed by four rapes in April, including that of Chandra Kovitz, who was five months pregnant at the time and had her one-year-old child in the apartment during the attack. It became very clear that the sexual assaults were being committed by the same perpetrator when investigators were able to identify a cluster of assaults that occurred in apartment complexes off of Dorchester Road and Rivers Avenue in North Charleston. Investigators in Somerville and Charleston were also reviewing rapes in their jurisdictions to see if they could have been committed by the same unsub. I love that word. For those of you who haven't watched Criminal Minds, that means unidentified suspect. 
two victims in May of 1991 lived in the Wedgwood apartment complexes off of Dorchester Road. The rental manager told reporters that 70% of the tenants are military and many women are left alone while their husbands are deployed. I was one such woman. One of the victims was pregnant at the time of her assault. The Lowcountry rapist, as he would become known, chose his victims carefully, targeting Caucasian women who appeared to be living alone or with young children. Police suspected that the rapist canvassed neighborhoods during the day and possibly posed as a door-to-door salesman. Excuse me. One of the victims stated that the day before she was assaulted, she had an encounter with the salesman during which she said that her husband was overseas. Ladies, never tell strangers that you're alone, especially not a door-to-door salesman. Apartment residents were encouraged to keep their doors and windows closed and secure and check that all doors and window locks worked properly. Apparently, the rapist was gaining access through open windows or those with faulty latches. A representative from People Against Rape even suggested hammering nails on the sides of the windows so that they only opened a few inches. You know, I was living in an apartment in West Ashley at the time. I'm not sure if you remember that place, but later on, um, I'll discuss a rape that happened uh, in the apartment complex next to mine. Yes, I do. It was also suggested that women hang bells from the window to make a noise if an intruder attempted to enter that way. Residents were also reminded to watch out for each other. My roommate and I always had the windows open because, well, we were poor and electricity was expensive. So we just cranked up the ceiling fans. We were terrified when the rape started getting more attention. And so we stashed knives in very easy to reach places. I even had one taped in the shower. So on March 12th, 1991, a woman asleep in her upstairs bedroom in the Hillside Apartments off Rivers Avenue was shaken awake at 5 a.m. by a strange man and sexually assaulted. Two weeks later, on May 27th, 1991, a white male entered an apartment in the Wedgwood complex through an unlocked downstairs window and sexually assaulted a 28-year-old woman. Charleston police indicated that the MO of those two rapes were very similar to a rape that occurred on April 1st in a single family residence um, south of Broad on Gibbs Street, which for those of you unfamiliar with Charleston, is a very historical and upscale part of the city. On June 15th, another assault occurred in an apartment on St. Ives Road in North Charleston. Police canvassed the area with bloodhounds for five hours, keeping more than 100 residents out of their homes. The victim, Linda Taggart, lived in the North Bluff apartment and her husband was deployed in the Navy. In 1996, she actually sued the apartment complex for not fixing a broken lock on her window prior to the rape and was awarded $750,000. Victims described the suspect as a white male with a suntanned or dark complexion between the ages of 19 to 25 years old, 125 to 160 pounds, and around 5 foot 4 to 5 foot 9 inches tall with dark brown curly or wavy hair and a scar on the left side of his face. These are the ranges as the description varied slightly from victim to victim. You know, I'm terrible at guessing ages and weight. Height, I think I could probably do just because it would be in relation to my own height, but the other two, I'd have no clue. So I can see how the victims would be unsure as well, also given the trauma that they had been through. I can imagine that while you're being assaulted, you're not really noticing every detail. And this could account for the difference in the ranges of his height and weight. He wore a stocking or ski mask over his face and gloves. He cut the phone lines and blindfolded the victims. He either held a pistol to the victim's head or threatened them with a knife, which he used to cut off their clothes and undergarments. 
For the victims that were moms, he would threaten to harm their children, which has to be the scariest thing. I cannot imagine someone threatening harm to my children. The NSEB would move his victims from their bedrooms to another room to commit the assault. At a July 3rd press conference, police released a composite drawing of the NSEB, which we will post to our Facebook page. The sketches of a Caucasian man with slight features wearing a bandana on his head. So when I heard the description of the rapist, I thought, he's so scrawny, I can probably take him. I think I was about 100 pounds at the time, but I just kept thinking, how can such a tiny guy get away with attacking so many women? On July 10th, 1991, in a subdivision off Ashley Phosphate Road in Dorchester County, County, a man entered a home through the garage and sexually assaulted a woman. Ten days later, on July 20th, another woman was attacked in her home around 3.20 in the morning. She lived on Gibbs Street in downtown Charleston, where an attack had occurred early in April, as we mentioned. Again, police indicated the MOs matched that of the Lowcountry rapist, but would not confirm that it was the same um, suspect until they had done further investigation. The one difference in the July 20th attack is that the victim lived with several other women, um, one of which was home at the time. Prior to this, the victims were either alone or with small children. By the beginning of August 1991, police suspected that the number of rapes was well over 14, believing many victims were afraid to report the assaults because they and their children had been threatened with harm. Investigators confirmed that since February of 1990, 14 women were confirmed to have been attacked by the same unsub. Although most of the rapes occurred in apartments located in North Charleston, several also occurred in single-family homes and two were in downtown Charleston, and at least three happened in Dorchester County. Police urged all victims to come forward in the hopes they could get more details and put a stop to the assaults. In the early morning of August 3, 1991, a woman living in Timberlane Apartments on Trolley Road in Dorchester County was sexually assaulted at gunpoint. So this is the assault that stuck with me all these years and is one of the reasons that I really wanted to do this True Crime on Our Minds podcast and talk about these crimes. One, because obviously it was something that occurred during my life in Charleston. And number two, this assault particularly was was extremely tragic. So the woman that was assaulted is Karen Jacobs. And what made this attack different from the others is that this wasn't the unsub's first assault in this apartment. You see, Karen is the mother of 13-year-old Amanda Jacobs. Amanda was attacked by the Lowcountry serial rapist just four months earlier in the same apartment. As you can imagine, the fact that the rapist returned to a place where he had committed an assault alarmed all of his victims, but the effect it had on Amanda would lead to tragedy. So her her assault occurred on April 17th. The rapist had entered the Jacobs apartment through an unlocked upstairs window, put a pillow over Amanda's face, held a knife to her throat, and cut off her nightclothes. He then proceeded to sexually assault her. Her. So he didn't rape her is what I saw in one report. She had told him that she was on her period, but he did sexually assault her. During his assault on Karen, the rapist asked how her daughter Amanda was. Oh my gosh, I cannot even imagine, especially having two daughters of my own and then having to live through the assault on my daughter and then later have to deal with it happening to me. They were victimized twice. I don't know if it would be called fortunate, but Amanda was out of town at the time her mom Karen was raped. 
It makes me wonder if he came back for Amanda the second time. I didn't see anything that speculated that in any of the reports, but why that apartment? I did see one other article that talked about a victim who believed that the rapist had come back a second time, but she was ready for him this time with a knife. So after the assault on Karen, police again urged residents to ensure their doors and windows were closed and locked and encouraged them to install alarms or buy a big mean dog. And this part kind of made me laugh. A big mean dog. I mean, I think I would be more terrified of a big mean dog than the rapist. Several articles mentioned the increase in the number of women taking self-defense classes and local gun dealers said more tear gassing guns were being sold to women. Although I did read that investigators were cautioning women not to run out and buy a gun for the fear that they would end up injuring themselves or somebody else that was innocent. North Charleston Police created a joint task force that also included the State Law Enforcement Division, known as SLED, Charleston Police, Charleston County Sheriff's Office, and Dorchester County Sheriff's Department. Investigators also said that the evidence was being run through the SLED laboratories in Columbia, South Carolina. This included DNA from several of the crime scenes. Although they would not elaborate, investigators said genetic evidence from several cases had matched up. It was mentioned in one article that the book Men Who Rape by psychiatrist Nicholas Groth described three types of rapists. There's the power rapist who wants to dominate their victims. There's the anger rapist who are seeking an outlet for their frustration and sadistic rapists who fuse power and sex together and use physical force or brutality. Dr. Ben Saunders of the Medical University Crime Victims Research and Treatment Center in Charleston believed that the low country rapist committed his assaults for power and control. Saunders stated that he did not think that the unsub was psychotic, but he had little or no conscience. He also believed that the Lowcountry rapist had few friends and that anyone who knew him would be unlikely to suspect him of the assaults. So investigators really didn't know how the unsub was selecting his victims, um, whether he saw them somewhere and followed them or was choosing them in some other way. Uh, They were confident, given the level of attention to detail, that he planned his attacks and that they were not crimes of opportunity. Up to this point, the Joint Task Force had investigated over 300 men since the composite drawing of the unsub was released in July. On September 7th, 17, 1991, around 2 a.m., a 23-year-old woman was taking garbage to a dumpster between two units of a apartment complex in Somerville when she was attacked. Now, this apartment complex was across from Somerville High School, which is where I went to school. The victim was dragged to a nearby wooded area and sexually assaulted. I do believe that this was a crime of opportunity. Um, reports indicated that the rapist may have tried to break into a nearby apartment where a window screen had been pried open, but was was unsuccessful. Also, it was unclear at the time whether the victim even lived at that complex. Although police would not confirm if they believed that the assault was committed by the Lowcountry rapist, a source close to the investigation said that the attack fit his MO. If this attack was committed by the NSUB, it brought the number of known rapes to 15 since February of 1990. Another assault occurred on Saturday, September 28. A 28-year-old woman was raped by a man who entered her apartment through a sliding glass door shortly before 6 a.m. So earlier when I mentioned that I lived in West Ashley in an apartment and that there had been an assault in the apartment uh, complex next to mine, this is the assault that I was talking about. I had been out late that night and was driving back to my apartment early in the morning. 
where I lived, there were several different complexes in this one area and they were located behind the shopping center. I ended up getting a flat tire and had to walk to my apartment in the dark. Um, it wasn't far, but where it happened was between my complex and where the one where the assault had happened. The next morning when I heard about the assault, it just really gave me the creeps to think that he could have been out there all that time. So the beginning of October, North Charleston police, which were leading the Lowcountry Rapist Task Force, decided to stop communicating with the media. There had been a lot of controversy regarding the publicity surrounding the assaults, which was pretty evident when we were doing our research. As we indicated at the beginning of the podcast, the first article we found was more than a year after the first rape was reported. It was unclear whether the silence was due to police frustration at not having caught the rapist or whether they had a suspect and were concerned he would realize he was being looked at. Whatever the reason, the silence did not stop the assaults. Around 6 a.m. on October 13th, a 26 year-old woman was raped at knife point in her West Ashley apartment on Ashley River Road. The man wore a mask over his face and forced the victim into the shower after the attack. Again, it was too early for authorities to confirm whether the assault was committed by the Lowcountry rapist, but investigators on the scene told reporters that the attack fit the unsub's MO. Okay, so after this attack, my roommate and I were really freaked out, but I had met Chris and he would often stay over when he didn't have duty or was deployed. If he couldn't be there because I knew that the attacks were happening around six in the morning. I would set my alarm to go off at 530 so I would be awake. And let me tell you, I am not a morning person. While investigators were at the scene of the attack, a young boy who lived in the complex alerted his mom to a very large knife in the bushes. Officers seized the knife and indicated that it matched items in the victim's kitchen. Sled agents brought bloodhounds to the scene, but they were unable to trace the rapist's escape because by the time the assault and the time the bloodhounds arrived, the scene had been contaminated by police, reporters and apartment residents. Well, that sucks. You really think, I mean, even back then, they knew to secure a crime scene. So uh, I think that was really unfortunate. Uh, police were still unsure how the rapist was selecting his victims. However, they said he spends time watching them before making his move. And I didn't see anything in the research that indicated how they knew that, but that was something that I read in one of the reports. Some of the victims worked at restaurants and bars, and one was a healthcare provider. North Charleston police decided to break their silence long enough to state that it would be some time before they would be able to confirm whether the latest attack was the work of the Lowcountry rapist. On October 15th, grocery store chain Piggly Wiggly announced that it would be putting up a $5,000 reward for information leading to the capture of the Lowcountry rapist. Up to this point, the only reward being offered was $1,000 by Crime Stoppers. A Somerville Citizens Group added $2,000, bringing the total up to $8,000. Piggly Wiggly also called out to citizens and businesses to contribute to the reward to help make the community safe again for women. Also at this time, a new composite sketch of the unsub was released by the Joint Task Force showing what the Lowcountry rapist might look like without the bandana on his head. And we'll post that to our Facebook page as well. Uh, one victim described the unsub as either a light-skinned black man or dark-skinned white man. However, the task force stated it was positive the unsub was white. The Trident Area New Car Dealers Association rose up to Piggly Wiggly's challenge by donating $13,000. Police hoped that the reward would entice someone who knows the serial rapist to turn him in. 
By October 20th, the reward to catch the Lowcountry rapist topped $20,000. That would be over $36,000 today. You said in today's money, it would be $36,000. That seemed really low. I know. I just did one of those, you know, like Google thing. What would, um, actually I checked two sites and it, that's what it said. So I guess money hasn't changed that much since then. I would have thought that that dollar amount in today's money would be much higher. So I was a little shocked. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Because even to me, $20,000 sounded pretty low. And that that didn't even come from Crime Stoppers. Most of that came from donations. I wonder, you know, what the, what the minimum is nowadays. We should look that up and see, you know, what is the average uh, reward that's put out for, you know, for information on a crime. I wouldn't even know what that is. And does it all come from Crime Stoppers or is it the family that puts up the money? That would be something interesting to find out. Well, I know that, you know, a lot of times if you watch Dateline, the family put up this uh, amount of money for a reward. When does Crime Stoppers or private donations come in? I guess you couldn't do it for every crime because there are so many of them. But um, yeah. So, I mean, how do they decide that? (laughs) We, we need, need to, to Google, Google that. that. <laughs> Regardless, at the time the, um, that the reward money was being offered, it was more than I made in a year. Police also stated that the number of rapes reported in the media as being linked to the Lowcountry rapist was inaccurate, but would not comment on what they believed the rapist numbers to be. The spokesperson for the Serial Rapist Task Force was quite hostile in one article, telling the reporter, every time the task force goes out to investigate a rape, you people add another number. That's just to sell newspapers. Wow, that does sound pretty hostile. Well, I can tell you that it was important to me to know where these crimes were happening and what was being done to stop them. Uh, I fit the low country rapist's type and I'm doing air quotes that you can't see. I get how the police could be frustrated with constantly being hounded by reporters for information, but providing them with details that wouldn't jeopardize the investigation, keep speculation, misinformation and panic to a minimum, I would think. On October 23rd, a task force spokesperson confirmed that it was investigating 22 sexual assaults that may be attributed to the Lowcountry rapist. North Charleston police said that the task force was actually investigating 38 attacks, 22 of which involved rape or attempted rape. They also provided dates and sites of the sexual assaults or attempted sexual assaults they were investigating, beginning with the rape on March 8, 1990 in Dorchester County. The task force indicated that seven more rapes occurred that year up to October 17th, at which time the rape stopped, leading police to speculate that the attacker was scared off because of the publicity or that he had left town. Unfortunately, the attacks began again on March 16, 1991, when a woman was attacked at her home on Gibbs Street in downtown Charleston. So up to this point, we've touched on most of the assaults that happened from May to October of 1991. The number of assaults suspected to be related to the Lowcountry rapist in 1991 was 14, and he wasn't finished, not by a long shot. There would be five more rapes through June of 1992 before police would finally have their suspect in custody. So this is where we're going to stop for part one, and we will release part two next week. We hope you will come back and join us. I'm going to Google that thing about reward money so we can talk about that in the next episode. Uh, Until then, make good choices, keep your head on a swivel, and be safe. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of True Crime On Our Minds. Check out our Facebook page and website at truecrimeminds.com where you
you can see photos and other information related to episodes and submit recommendations on other crimes. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and provide us with a rating. You can also find us on Patreon and sign up to get extra content and support the show.